0: Welcome! You are listening to Nancy Porter, and this is a recording provided for the use of the blind and print-impaired by Ayers L.A. And materials or items read on Ayers L.A. are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers, and no unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. The first article is from Time Magazine, the January 16th to January 23rd issue. And there was a large focus in that issue on happiness. And this article is titled The American Way of Happiness by Darren McMahon, who is a professor of history at Dartmouth College, and he's the editor of a book called History and Human Flourishing. The county has dramatically changed how it defines satisfaction. The Declaration of Independence promises, quote, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, But if you're lucky enough to live in states like Virginia, New Hampshire, Vermont, New Jersey, Massachusetts, and a number of others, your rights get even better. The 18th century constitutions of all these states spell out not only a right to seek happiness, but also to obtain it. Of course, Blandishments about happiness meant little to enslaved persons or the indigenous, and there were others, from people struggling at the margins to women trapped in abusive marriages, for whom happiness was inconceivable at the time. We are quick to identify those shortcomings today, pointing out where the founders, for all their far-sightedness, were blind. Yet, even as many have worked hard to extend rights more broadly and raise expectations along the way, we have lost sight of some essential aspects of happiness that the founders clearly had in mind. Consider first that however restricted their views, the founders certainly raised expectations for many, and that was revolutionary in its own right. For most people, happiness was not considered something that could be counted on or controlled where life was hard and unpredictable and the world in its ways uncertain. Suffering was the norm. The best one could hope for was to get through it relatively unscathed. Today, if you feel your right to happiness has been denied, you can bring it up with a lawyer. But before you take your case to court, it's worth thinking about how the founders conceived of happiness and How best to find it for yourself. For in many ways, Americans have been wrestling with that conception ever since the Declaration was signed. To go back to the source, consider the word happiness itself, which in every Indo-European language is cognate with luck. The English happiness, for example, derives from the Old Norse word hap, H-A-P-P meaning precisely that look such wisdom was once widely received quote, "call no man happy until he is dead" end quote, exclaimed Solon the great Athenian statesman known for being one of the wisest men of ancient Greece he and others knew that the gods were capricious and human fortune perilous even for the luckiest Christians, for their part, had traditionally conceived of happiness as a heavenly reward for God's chosen, those who endured their earthly pilgrimage with sanctity and faith. But, as for pilgrimage itself, we should have no illusions. The world was a veil of tears. St. Augustine summed it up. True happiness is unattainable in our present life. That was a belief that the founders, like other groups in the 18th century, including enlightened Christians, challenged outright. Neither a vindictive God nor the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune stood in the way of the human pursuit of satisfaction. The world was amenable to our understanding and control, and with foresight and planning, we could make our happiness in it. A benevolent creator smiled on our efforts to be happy in this life as well as the next. But, if religion sanctioned the pursuit of happiness, it was up to human beings to secure it. That task entailed both a public and a private component. Indeed, the founders conceived of the science of government as what John Adams called the science of social happiness. In short, just as individuals had a right to pursue happiness, governments had a duty to help provide it. Adams' longtime friend and political foe, James Madison, wholeheartedly agreed. The object of government, he declared in the Federalist Paper Number 62, is the happiness of the people. The best way to begin securing that happiness was to start with security itself. The founders often coupled happiness with safety, arguing that individuals had to be secure from lawlessness and anarchy, as well as from tyranny and the predations of the powerful, in order to flourish in their inherent rights to both liberty and the enjoyment of life. And how best to enjoy? That was largely a private undertaking, to each their own. But the founders still had strong thoughts on the matter. On the one hand, they believed that enjoyment entailed the acquiring and possessing of property. They never equated property with happiness itself, but they did see it as a means one to the other, and they were right to do so. Not only is property a buffer against the misfortune, It is also, in the form of income and wealth, correlated with life satisfaction. Although money can't buy happiness directly, on average, you are happier with it than without it. Modern researchers have found that money is only one piece of the happiness puzzle. The founders understood this. Wherein consists the happiness of a rational creature? Benjamin Franklin asked in 1732 at the Leather Apron Club, the Friday evening discussion group he led for decades, in having a sound mind, a healthy body, a sufficiency of the necessities and conveniences of life, together with the favor of God and the love of mankind. Note that he says sufficiency, not surfeit. And to earn God's favor and the love of mankind, one has to think about doing good not only one for oneself, but also for others, for family, for friends, for society as a whole. Private and public happiness, in effect, go hand in hand. The risk of forgetting all of this was there from early on. Already in the 1830s, the un- incomparable observer of American democracy, French arist- aristocrat, historian, and philosopher Alexis de Tocqueville, warned in Democracy in America that although no one could work harder to be happy, Americans seemed perpetually restless in the midst of their abundance and often a little sad. The danger, as he saw it, was that the taste for personal pleasures risked turning Americans inward, setting them at odds with one another, and leading them astray. Attention has been called to this danger many times since, highlighting an abiding tension in American democracy between the pursuit of individual happiness and the happiness of the people. Arguably, that tension has never been greater than today, when isolation, inequality, and social fracture Feature daily in our headlines and lives. Recent survey data suggests that the amount of time Americans spend with other people, including friends, is falling. It is hard to be social, even on social media, when you are alone. There are no easy solutions, but it helps to bear in mind that the architects of the nation conceived of private and public happiness together which is to say that the sound minds, healthy bodies, necessities, and conveniences of our fellow citizens matter along with our own. If we want to fully exercise our right to not just pursue happiness, but to obtain it, we would do well to keep that founding insight in mind. All right, the next article is from the Views section of the January 30th to February 6th issue of Time Magazine. And the title is What Humans Owe Animals. It's by Martha C. Nessbaum. And she is the author of a book called Justice for Animals, from which this essay is adopted. What Humans Owe Animals animals. Wherever you look, animals are in trouble. Our world is dominated by humans everywhere, on land, in the seas, and in the air. No non-human animal escapes our domination, which inflicts wrongful injury on animals through the barbarous cruelties of the factory meat industry, pollution of the air and the seas, or neglect of the companion animals that people purport to love. In a way, this problem is age-old. Both Western and non-Western philosophical traditions have deplored human cruelty to animals for around two millennia. The Hindu emperor Ashoka, a convert to Buddhism, wrote about his efforts to give up meat and to forego all practices that harmed animals. In ancient Greece, the Platonist philosophers Blutarch and Porphyry wrote detailed treatises deploring human cruelty to animals, describing other creatures' keen intelligence and their capacity for social life, and urging humans to change their diet and their way of life. But, by and large, these voices have fallen on deaf ears, even in the supposedly moral realm of the philosophers, and most humans have continued to treat most animals like objects whose suffering really doesn't matter. Today we have, then, a long-overdue ethical debt, to listen to arguments we refuse to hear, to care for what we have obtusely ignored, and to act on the knowledge of our bad practices that we can so easily attain. In Porphyry's world, animals suffered when they were killed for meat, but up to that point they lived pretty decent lives There was no fancy meat industry that today breeds these animals as if they were just meat already, confining them in horrible conditions, cramped and isolated, until they die before ever having decently even lived. Animals were long hunted in the wild, but for the most part their habitats were not taken over for human dwellings or invaded by poachers seeking to make money from the murder of intelligent beings like elephants or rhinoceroses. In the seas, humans have always fished for food, and whales have long been hunted for their commercial value. But the sea was not always full of plastic trash that can choke them to death. Nor did companies drilling for undersea oil create noise pollution everywhere, making life increasingly difficult for social creatures whose sense of hearing is their primary mode of communication. Birds were shot for food. But those who escaped did not choke on air pollution or crash fatally into urban skyscrapers, whose lights enticed them. Today, new forms of animal cruelty turn up all the time, without even being recognized as cruelty, since the impact on the lives of intelligent beings is barely considered. What do we do now? First, we need a good theory to map out the goals to which we are heading. My theory, the capabilities approach, rejects the idea that we ought to rank animals by their likeness to us, and also that we should focus only on the minimization of pain. The theory says that justice entitles all animals to a set of capabilities, or opportunities to choose, corresponding to their species' form of life. For example, Each elephant would be entitled to the opportunities to socialize with a matriarchal herd of other elephants, to bring up young communally in that setting, to walk long distances over the grass searching for and finding food, and to be free from murderous poachers easier to kill for their ivory. Animals do need relief from pain, but they also need the society of other creatures lots of room to move around in, opportunities for play, and in general the chance to be the makers of their own lives. The capabilities approach urges that our goal should be, for each type of animal, a set of opportunities or capabilities to lead lives' characteristics of their kind. With the capabilities approach framework in mind, even a very humane zoo will be problematic because animals there typically do not live with a large enough group of other animals and have few choices about how to live. There is so much to be done that there is more than enough for everyone, and we all need to work from our own starting points and with our own skills. My law students will go out and try to grapple with the myriad of legal issues about animal treatment that are now before us. Others will focus on efforts to protect the factory farming industry or raise awareness about plastic waste and its disastrous effects on marine creatures. Many will adopt and love a shelter animal. Justice is for all of us, and it's a choice. It's a choice to become friends of animal lives with wonder, compassion, outrage, and hope. We need to make it now. All right, the next article is from the health section, and it's also from the View Inbox in the January 30th, February 6th issue of Time Magazine in 2023. Health Matters by Alice Park. There is no byline. I assume she's a Times uh, writer. Health Matters. In the third year of the COVID-19 pandemic, It may be time to rethink booster recommendations, says one vaccine expert who serves on the U.S. Food and Drug Administration's Vaccine Advisory Committee. In a perspective published in the New England Journal of Medicine, Dr. Paul Offit makes a case for why it may be time to reconsider blanket booster recommendations that apply to everyone equally. For one, the latest Omicron booster A bivalent dose that targets both the original and Omicron BA.4 and BA.5 variants is no longer up to date. When it was authorized in August of 2022, the BA.4 and BA.5 variants were expected to cause most of the new infections in the United States. Now, different Omicron variants like XBB have taken over. In addition, Studies show that people who receive the bivalent Omicron booster don't make appreciably higher levels of virus-fighting antibodies against the BA.4 and BA.5 strains than people who received the original booster. That means, as most people already know, that getting the booster doesn't mean you won't get infected with the virus. The booster does, however keep people from developing severe COVID-19 illness. So often says it still provides critical protection for the elderly and people with weakened immune systems. But for otherwise healthy people, the bivalent shot is protecting against mild illness from Omicron strains that already cause only mild disease to begin with. The experience of the past year has taught us that chasing these Omicron variants with a bivalent vaccine is a losing game, says Offit, who also developed the rotavirus vaccine and is director of the Vaccine Educated Center at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. When the pandemic began and people had no immunity to the virus, building that immunity with vaccines and booster shots was critical. Now, with most people vaccinated or recovered from bouts of natural infection, that immunity has increased. So most people who get infected with Omicron strains aren't getting severely ill. Better data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention about who is getting hospitalized because of COVID-19 could help narrow down which people benefit most from a booster, says Offit. Initially, Everybody benefited from getting vaccinated and boosted, he says. But we need to learn who benefits now. Okay, let's go on to another article from the same issue of Time Magazine, January 30th to February 6th, 2023. This one is called Davos. It's an essay. And it is titled, The Dangerous Quest for Identity. It is by Yuval Noah Harari, who is the author of the book called, Of Sapiens and Unstoppable Us. Sapiens and Unstoppable Us. All humans ask themselves who they are, where they came from, and what is their identity. This quest for identity is important, And fascinating but it can also be dangerous in attempting to define a clear identity for myself I might close myself off to the world I might conclude that my identity is defined by belonging to a single group of people emphasizing those parts in me that connect me to the chosen group and ignoring all my other parts but people are incredibly complex beings If we focus on just one part of our identity and imagine that if that alone matters, we cannot understand who we really are. For example, for me, as a Jew, it is obvious that Jewish history and Jewish culture are important to my identity. But to understand who I am, the Jewish story is far from sufficient. I am made of many pieces that came from all over the world. I like football, which I got from the British. They invented the game. So when I kick a ball into the goal, I'm being a little British. I like to drink coffee in the morning, for which I must thank the Ethiopians who discovered coffee and the Arabs and Turks who spread the drink far and wide. I like sweetening my coffee with a spoonful of sugar. So I'm grateful to the Papons who domesticated sugarcane in New Guinea at least 8,000 years ago. Sometimes I upgrade my coffee with a piece of chocolate, which came to me all the way from the tropical forests of Central America and Amazonia, where Native Americans began making cocoa treats perhaps as early as 5,000 years ago. Some Jews don't like football, don't drink coffee, and avoid sugar and chocolate, but they still owe much to foreigners. Hebrew, the sacred language of Judaism, got many of its words, idioms, and basic structures from other languages, such as Phoenician, Akkadian, Greek, Arabic, and most importantly, Aramaic. Entire chunks of the Old Testament are written in Aramaic rather than Hebrew, as are large parts of the Mishnah, Talmud, and other key Jewish texts. The ancient Aramaeans worshipped the god Hadad rather than Jehovah, and killed several Jewish kings. But the Hebrew language and Jewish culture can hardly be imagined without our Aramaean contributions. Orthodox Jews leave the world to the Aramaic sound of the Kaddish prayer. At some point, about 2,500 years ago, Jews even abandoned their own Hebrew script and up to this day write the Torah the Talmud, and their daily newspapers in Aramaic script. As for the very idea of writing, it is a contribution not of Aramaeans, but of the ancient Sumerians. Thousands of years before the first Jew lived, some Sumerian geeks had a startup. Use a stick to imprint marks on a piece of mud. They invented a code for these marks and created the technology of writing. Which eventually gave us books, newspapers, and websites. Not just its language and writing system, but even core religious beliefs came to Judaism from outside. For instance, the belief that humans have an eternal soul that is punished or rewarded in the afterlife isn't mentioned anywhere in the Torah, and apparently was not a key part of Biblical Judaism. The Old Testament God never promises people that if they follow his commandments, they'll enjoy everlasting bliss in heaven. And nowhere does he threaten that if they sin, they'll be burned for all eternity in hell. Belief in a personal afterlife seeped into Judaism from other faiths, most notably from the Greek philosophy of Plato and from the Persian religion of Zoroastrianism. The Persians also gave the Jews the idea of the devil and of the Messiah. From food to philosophy, from medicine to art, most of what keeps us alive and most of what makes life worthwhile are things that were not invented by members of my own specific nation, but by people from across the whole world. That's true not just of Jews, but of everyone. Once, someone who wanted to belittle African creatures asked derisively, Who is the Tolstoy of the Zulus? That person seemed to believe that the culture of no African people, either the Zulus or anyone else, produced literary works comparable to Tolstoy's War and Peace, or Anna Karenina. Ralph Wiley, an African-American journalist, answered this challenge with breathtaking simplicity. Wiley didn't list Zulu authors like Benedict Wallet, Vilikazi, Masizi Kunini, or John Langjabil Dubi, nor did he insist more generally that African authors like Chinua Achibi, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, or Nugugi Wathiongo are as good as Western authors. Wiley completely bypassed the secta- sectarian trap. Instead, in he wrote in his book titled Dark Witness, that Tolstoy is the Tolstoy of the Zutus, unless you find a profit in fencing off universal properties of mankind into exclusive tribal ownership. In contrast to the views held by fanatical racists, as well as by people taking the condemnation of cultural appropriation to extremes, Tolstoy isn't the exclusive property of Russians. Tolstoy belongs to all humans. Tolstoy himself was deeply influenced by the ideas of foreigners like the French Victor Hugo and the German Arthur Schopenhauer, not to mention Jesus and Buddha. Tolstoy speaks of feelings, questions, and insights that are relevant to the inhabitants of Durban and Johannesburg no less than those of Moscow and St. Petersburg. 2,000 years ago, the African-Roman playwright Terence a freed slave, expressed the same key when he said, I am human, and nothing human is foreign to me. Every human being is heir to the whole of human creation. People who in search of their identity narrow their world to the story of a single nation are turning their back on their humanity. They devalue what they share with all other humans, and they devalue far deeper things. All the inventions and ideas of humans over the past few thousand years are just the upper crust of who we are. Under this crust, at the depths of our bodies and minds, we contain things that evolved over millions of years, long before there were any humans. This deep mystery manifests itself in everything I feel and think. To understand who I am, it is necessary to open up to this mystery and explore it, instead of settling for a story about how I belonged to one tribe of people who lived for a few thousand years on some hills near some river. Consider, for example, our courtship rituals. What do we feel when we see someone we find attractive, when we hold hands for the first time, when we exchange a first kiss? Think of the emotional storm, the hopes and fears, the butterflies in the stomach, the rising body heat, the quickening breath. What are all these things that authors are endlessly fascinated with and that singers never tire of singing about? These aren't things that were invented by Jews, Aramaeans, Russians, or Zulus. These things weren't invented by any humans. Evolution shaped them over millions of years and we share them not only with all other humans, but also with chimpanzees. Excuse me. These things weren't invented by any humans. Evolution shaped them over millions of years, and we share them not only with all other humans, but also with chimpanzees, dolphins, bears, and numerous other animals. Religious rituals like the Jewish bar mitzvah or the Christian Eucharist, are at most 2,000 years old, and they connect the present generation to about a 100 previous generations. In contrast, the rituals of mammalian romance are tens of millions of years old, and they connect us to millions of previous mammalian generations, and even to pre-mammalian ancestors. If I insist on narrowing my identity to the fact that I belong to one specific human group, then I ignore all that. I leave little room in my identity to football and chocolate, to Aramaic and Tolstoy, and even to romance. What remains is a narrow tribal story, which may serve as a sharp weapon in the battles of identity politics, but which comes with a high price. As long as I adhere to that narrow story, I'll never know the truth about myself. And uh, this has been a recording provided by the use or the blind and print impaired. Materials or items read here on airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. Again, I am Nancy Porter, and I have enjoyed sharing Time magazine with you.